I think this is a really special episode for you, I'm guessing, right? Because you've had a lot of people on this show that you've known. Uh, this is a person I don't believe you knew before this show, but you were just a big fan of. And I think even in one of our pre-production meetings, you uh, told Hannah, who produces everything, not only here for the show, but also at our agency, that Treva was the kind of person that it'd be great to get someone like, like almost like, well, I'm sure we couldn't get Treva, but it'd be great to get someone like. And the fact that she's on the show uh, probably, I'm guessing, means a lot to you. Can you set up for the audience who Treva is and why uh, she was such a big get for the show for you? So when I was a little kid, uh, my favorite show was the Mary Tyler Moore show. Now, it was the show that held the record for how many Emmys it got. Um, it was it couldn't have been more popular, could have been more respected and has a lot to do with how I know how to do what I do. Um, you know, that's the show I used to uh, before you could record shows. This is in the 70s. I used to make a recording like an audio tape. I used to record Mary Tyler Moore and listen to it and try to break apart the story. So I was doing that at a fairly young age. As soon as I got a tape recorder that I could do, I must have been nine, 10, something like that when I started doing it. Um, um, and, and I started to figure out what story structure was before I'd ever read a book about it or anything about that, because it's such a well constructed show. Um, and it's, and people rediscover it different generations. It started in 1970, uh, the show, uh, and it ended in 77. It was still at the top of the ratings. They just, you know, uh, decided to end the show. Um, but people rediscover it all the time. And I'll try to get people to watch it. And they're like, oh, that's an old show. And they won't watch it. But when people do watch it, they're kind of amazed at the quality of the show. Um, and people are like, that show really holds up. Uh, I, I firmly believe that things hold up when they are good. Um, it's not that time makes something bad. It wasn't working in the first place. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so I firmly believe that it's, it's, it's a show that has good bones in a way that it's so well-structured that it just will last. It's the, it's about human beings and human beings don't change that much. Clothes change, slang changes, you know, the quality of the, of the picture is different, you know, low res, whatever, but the, but the core at the core of it, it's amazing. And the name when I was a kid watching that show that came up a lot was this as a writer was this name Treva Silverman. And I think as early as I could read that name was on that screen. And I almost, I always kind of knew, Oh, this is going to be a good one. And as I got older and watched the show over the decades, I became, I got more and more respect for this person, Treva. I didn't know whether Treva was a man or a woman. It's not a name I'd heard before in my life. I only knew this is this person. And then later I, I started reading more about the show and found out who she was. And um, Mary Tyler Moore is one of the best shows that's ever been on television. And she wrote some of the best episodes of the best show. Um, she is uh, an unbelievable force in terms of her uh, abilities. Um, there is a humanity at the core of her work that is, um, I, I, it's, it's, it's mind blowing to me. Um, and like I say about so many people on the show, but it's totally true. She's such a genuine, sweet human being. And maybe that's part of what makes people good at finding the humanity and characters. I don't know. 
But um, maybe that's part of it because she could not have been kinder. Um, I feel like I made a friend through, you know, trying to get her on the show, which took a long time for various reasons. And we finally did get her on. Um, but just our email exchanges were, um, were so, um, kind and human and not that formal, um, just like an old friend. And I, I feel like, um, it's just the biggest thrill to meet a, she's like a childhood hero in a way, you know? Um, uh, yeah, almost, almost on the verge of tears. That's how much that this means to me that she came on the show. This week's episode, we have Treva Silverman. Hello, and welcome to You Are a Storyteller, Masters of the Craft, a conversational series hosted by author and filmmaker Brian McDonald. In this episode, Brian is joined by Emmy-winning screenwriter Treva Silverman, known for her writing on classic television shows such as That Girl, The Monkees, and The Mary Tyler Moore Show. Treva shares what it was like working on these groundbreaking productions and why the Mary Tyler Moore Show characters were so relatable, and the euphoria that comes from writing in a flow state. So what I primarily have known you from is the Mary Tyler Moore show. Although I did watch the monkeys, but when I was watching the monkeys, I couldn't read yet. So I didn't, I didn't didn't know your name (laughs) because I couldn't read yet. But uh, by the time Mary Tyler Moore came along, um, uh, I could read. So, so, so I would recognize your name. So first of all, were you always writing? I know that you were a uh, musical prodigy, right? Yeah. So uh, can we talk a little bit about that? Get a little bit of uh, history um, before we talk in the, Sure, talk absolutely. I have three older sisters, and um, they were all taking piano lessons. And I was, I was five. I wasn't ready yet. And my mother heard somebody practicing, and she came down the stairs, and it was me. And I was playing by ear uh, one of my sister's Beethoven or Schubert or one of them, one of them guys. Yeah. Um, so I had an interview with Ju- uh, with Juilliard, and they said the word genius and said your music, uh, your daughter is a music genius. And I remember my older sister. I was five, so she was uh, like eleven, and she said, "When you go back to kindergarten this afternoon." She said, don't tell them that they, they called you a genius. They'll be very angry at you. Huh, yeah. And that was my first thing of lightning flash. I'm different. I'm different. Mm. You know, something is different about me. Plus, and, and this is more in line with what you were asking. How did I end up writing and being on Mary Television? Um, plus, uh, um, being musical genius, <laughs> being a musical genius, <laughs> in, in, involves um, that I have perfect pitch, that I can play, I can play anything that I've heard, and I can play it in any key. Wow. And um, the word perfect to a five-year-old, and this is what I was thinking about, Brian, the word perfect was no effort on my own part. I, I think it imbued everything else I was going to do with some sort of not good enough, not good enough. You have to be better, better, better. Because there I was with 
no effort. Hello, I'm perfect with my pitch and my being able to play in every key. And I, I think it sort of zoomed me on uh, to be dissatisfied un until I could get further up, up, up the, the, the scale. No pun intended. Um, sure. I, I want to interrupt you for a second and ask you about no, um, because um, sometimes that kind of reach, that kind of um, stretch for perfection can cripple some people in terms of, you know what I mean? They can never get yeah. there. And so, yeah. uh, you know, I had a good friend who, who uh, was a writer of note of some reputation and he, he had sort of his heyday in the 50s, writing in the 50s. And then uh, in the 70s, he just sort of stopped. He couldn't do it. And he it was because he was reaching for this perfection and he just stopped writing. He couldn't do it anymore. Um, That's so tragic. He he couldn't he couldn't reach what he had reached earlier. And so he felt he was a failure. Um, one I, think thing he that, could, I think he could do it. He just but he didn't, yeah. didn't believe that he could. Yeah. I mean, he wrote the movie Sybil in the 70s. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. What a complicated. <laughs> yeah. Psychologically oriented mind he had. Yeah. So yeah. He wrote that. And so he was able to do that. But he uh, he won his Emmy that year for that for that. And then uh, he told me that Kermit the Frog gave him his Emmy. And he said, <laughs> he said that uh, when he was uh, accepting it, he knew he was going to quit the job he, he was working on because he didn't think he could do it as he was holding the Emmy in his hand. So huh. it really, it really, um, he would write great emails and letters and, you know, I mean, everything was a masterpiece. When he wasn't being judged. Yeah. When he wasn't being judged. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I was just going to ask if that was ever a problem for you or if you, um, sometimes I think perfection or the, the reach for perfection is a way for people to procrastinate and not make decisions. That's my favorite word. Is it? Yes. Um, my, my, my office and my living room have never been so clean and clear and organized. You know, the feeling I as do. When, I, when I'm supposed to be writing. Oh yeah. Um, the, the thing, the thing that I wanted to say about, about your friend, is that I was very close with Ed Kleban, and Ed wrote the lyrics to A Chorus Line. And he had so much problem, he had so many problems after that, because here it was his first really thing. It was A Chorus Line, right. um, which won every conceivable thing that you can win. And he, he was, he was a, kind of fragile, complicated guy to begin with. Mm -hmm. And that sort of, that was in a kind of way, totally fucked him up. Totally, totally. Um, for some reason, it didn't screw me up. The reaching mm -hmm. for being better thing. Um, I don't know why, because other, other things, I am, I'm, <laughs> I am never ever going to try to pretend that I'm not screwed up. Um, <laughs> so this isn't the thing of I'm not screwed up. It's just in some ways, in some magical thank you, uh, heavens, 
I, I, that, that pushed me on rather, that, that pushed me on rather than slowed me up or made me feel like a failure. Um, if I didn't, if I didn't reach it from this benediction of genius thing, I, I then, uh, I then started to write music and, uh, along with the music, uh, I started writing songs and it was never, it was never song songs. It was pretty much, um, uh, that I then wanted to, com uh, I wanted to then compose for Broadway musicals. So I became my own lyricist. And after college, I supported myself singing and playing the piano at night and then writing songs during the day. And where, where, where were you singing and playing the piano? Like, there aren't a lot of places that do that now. So where? where oh, where? hey, baby. <laughs> uh, what you do before before singing and playing? Um, uh, every every kind of every kind of bar. I would tell my parents, um, it's a cocktail lounge in Staten Island. Um, and you lived where? Um, I lived in New York. I, 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 I grew up outside of New York, um, suburb Cedarhurst. Okay. And uh, went in all the time to, to see musicals. And um, yeah, I was living in New York and supporting myself singing and playing at night. And uh, it, was, it was a lot of piano bars. Um, a lot of piano bars, a lot of bar bars, um, a, a lot of things where the Hey Baby people would come over, which, which was really good for me because I didn't, I hadn't come in contact with such people. Okay. Um, so here, here, it was a wonderful education. It was, it was guys on the loose um, and it was kind of lost. And um, uh, it, it was it, it was meeting meeting and, and socializing at, at, at the places with, with people I wouldn't have met mm -hmm. before and and kind of came to understand them more than it would have been just if I had just seen a movie about them or, sure. or something. Yeah. And um, th uh, then uh, then I I was chosen to be um, one of, of six people who were in a musical comedy school. Um, it, it was a wonderful, uh, it was a fun, wonderful era where Broadway musicals, that, that was the top of, of everything. Everybody would see them. Everybody wanted to write them. And there was this one school in New York it was the only school that taught musical musical comedy, and we were uh, we all went in and auditioned, and and six of us were selected. We were given one act musical, one act plays, and we were supposed to musicalize them, and then they would have a presentation every week. I found instantly that I wanted to musicalize comedies. Comedy had always been the thing. And uh, so but did you know you were funny? And how did you know that? Was it a funny, funny family? Did you have a funny family? No, 
Okay. Oh, well, I, no, I, no, I should, I, I shouldn't say that. I have three older sisters. They all have a good sense of humor. My mother and father were not inwardly. They, 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 they didn't look inside. They, they weren't introspective, and um, they always said things that didn't give anything away. You, you didn't know who they were. Um, oh, you met a new. You, you, you met uh, Aunt, Aunt Marcy's best friend. What was she like? As sweet as sugar. I mean, so it, it was always thing, it was always things like that. So I was about seven and my sisters were, they would be 11, 13, they're, they're five, seven, and nine. Math is not my strong. Sure. Yeah. Um, and we were supposed to line up whenever we would be introduced. We each wore beautiful velvet, little velvet dresses with, we were told, Belgian lace. I didn't even know what Belgian was, Belgian, but Belgian lace. And we're supposed to line up. I'm, ba- I'm Lila, I'm Kareem, I'm Valerie, I'm Treva. And we would do this because of my mother saying, we should do this. And I was at my Aunt Marcy's and uh, we were all lined up. And it went, I'm Lila, I'm Kareen, I'm Valerie. And I thought to myself, I just can't do this. So I said, I'm hungry. And it got a big laugh. I thought, oh, yeah, that is funny. That's funny, huh? That's funny. Well, we were dragged all around the room. Say what you said before, you know, Lila, Kareen, I'm Valerie, I'm hungry. And I thought to myself, huh? This is a pretty good little rift here. Um, and from then on, I started changing in my head what my parents would say. Um, I, if they would say a cliche, I would say in my mind, oh, yeah, well, that, that's, that's really the way it is, huh? But I wouldn't say it out loud. And I think I, uh, I, think I was developing a sense of humor. You, you, you can't you can't make a sense of, you, you you can't go to school and say okay uh, I want you know three points in and and math seven points in, you know right um, uh, but one of my sisters Kareen for some reason because it could have been any of them she would really respond and so at the dinner table um, instead of keeping stuff to myself I would say it out loud. And this is my sister, Corrine. She would laugh. And I would, my goal was to make her face red from laughing. Uh-huh. And if she, if her face would get red from laughing, I would, yay. Um, and so that's, that's how it developed. That's how it developed. Um, I think had, had I gotten no response from anybody, uh, I, I don't know. It's uh, everything in life is a what if, you know. It, yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. So, okay. So, so that uh, you took that into your, now did that, did that, was that just oh. inside your family or did you take that? Did your friends think you were funny? Did you have funny friends? Yes. Did you? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I had funny friends. Um, we all thought each other was funny. I had a humor column in, in high school. And then I went to university of Chicago and I went to Bennington and at Bennington, 
um, I would give uh, little little recitals of my of my songs. A lot of them were comedy songs, and um, then a- then after now we're getting into after college with the singing and playing. Uh, hey baby, um, and then when I was going to this musical comedy school, uh, a director came to one of the presentations and he said. Um, he said, I am starting uh, children's musicals and would you like to write the scores? And we're going to be doing it off-Broadway. Yay! So, uh, yeah, of course. He said, well, we have... Um, can, can I ask you around what year this might have been? Yeah, let me see. Uh, 1960. Okay. Yeah, it would, it would probably be just around there. Okay. Um, he said, would you like to write a, a, a score? Uh, I said, yes. And he said, we were thinking about having like 12, 12 songs. Uh, uh, so I said, sure. And he said, by Friday? <laughs> and I said, sure. Now, today I wouldn't do, today I would say, that's not possible. Sure. I am an artist. I would never conceive. Now, today I would say, gee, I really need more time. You know, but then it was like, sure. And so we did the first one and everything was fine. And they said, we want you to do all of ours. And I said, um, okay, but only if I can write the script too. So that's the first time really that I was writing scripts, which wow. I didn't know. I didn't know that I would be able well I, I assumed that I could because they, I, I knew that it would be better than the script that I was musicalizing sure and uh, then I was I was going out with one of my best friends who's still one of my best friends now John Meyer and Johnny was a very good and is very good comedy writer and he was writing uh, sketches and he said, uh, oh, I have an idea for a sketch. So I started writing my first sketches with him and then uh, gradually started writing my first sketches. Can I ask if you had any influences? Who you're, who, who, did you have a version, like the person you are for me, right? Like, oh, that, I, I'd like to be able to do what she does. Did you have a person like that or people like that that you looked at and you went that they know what they're doing? I got to learn that. Robert Benchley. Mm-hmm. Robert Benchley was probably Robert Benchley and J.D. Salinger okay. were probably my biggest influences uh, as as far as opening up, oh, opening up um, that that kind of attitude. Um, there was no ever ever. There was nothing ever mean about either of them, mm. uh, about either of their attitudes towards towards writing. Patty Chayefsky, I th- I think if I could name one writer, it w- one uh, yeah playwright uh, movie writer, it would be Patty Chayefsky, and I have to say Stephen Sondheim. Because mm-hmm. Stephen Sondheim, uh, th- those are my and and John Updike, those okay. are my major um, 
But as far was there anybody, and I, I agree with all those things. Chayefsky's one of one of my people. Oh God. Yeah. Oh, so God. yeah. I'm surprised you haven't heard me talk about him on a show because I will talk about him at the drop of a hat. So so I will talk about him and Rod Serling, I think, at the drop of a hat. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. But um uh but in terms of like sketch comedy or anything like that, was there anybody? It doesn't have to have been. I'm just curious. Um well, see, this was, remember, this was way before, oh, my God. Oh, Mike and Elaine. Oh. Oh, Mike and Elaine. That's all. Uh, I, was, I was just about to say that was decade, that was years before SNL. But no, improv. Um, but yeah, yeah. I shouldn't even say improv. Name. Mike and Elaine, that was it. Yeah, um, I should let people know because there's a lot of younger people who don't know. Yes. My, my people were amazing. I was very, um, I was friendly and, and still am friends with Marlo Thomas. And Marlo is, is close friends with Elaine. And so I had, uh, I had a, a time where we were uh, just three or four or five of us. And I was able to tell Elaine every, everything that was in my heart. Sure. What an influence, but that I said, which is true, and you and I know that you know this. She influenced everybody who was influencer, influenceable. Yes, she did. She yeah, yeah, yeah. That her words, I said to her that her words and attitudes are in my brain, imprinted. Mm -hmm. um, you found that too, didn't you? So much. Oh yeah, them? yeah. But you know, they they were they were by the time I came along or was sort of aware, they were they were not doing their work together. So I had to learn about them later. Um, I learned about them later. And Mike Nichols was a director. That's what I knew. I didn't know this past. It was just before I was sort of conscious <laughs> that uh, yeah. that was happening. Yeah, because I was born in '65. You were born in '65. Oh, right. So that at that at that point, yeah, um, yeah. So I missed them when they. So were. you're you're exactly sort of thirty years younger than me. So so I I I had I was very lucky to be born when I was born. Because I, I I saw I saw the changeover from the fifties brain to the late sixties and seventies brain, and you were just you were just growing up, and you I, were just watching the monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching the monkeys, and you were writing for the book. And I also uh, I I went for some reason I don't know why when I was five the Mary Tyler Moore Show was my favorite show so. Really? It came on when I was five, started when I was five. Uh, That's right. Was, That's right. Yeah. 1970. Yeah. Yeah. It started when I was five and um, uh, so did Sesame Street. So, <laughs> so uh, Brian, tell, tell me what you, tell me what you remember of, of being five and what, and watching it. Did it, was it a thing where it made you feel good or because they were nice people uh, how can you be five and 
I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out. I can't figure it out either. I don't know. Um, yeah. I, I think, here's what I think. I think that there are things that kids, of course, they don't understand, right? They don't yeah. know, they don't get certain references. Um, they don't know how complicated it can be to be an adult, right? But I do think what kids do <laughs> understand is relationships, our relationships. And so they know, oh, that person's not the smart person and that person's slimy and that person's nice huh. and that person's funny and that you know i think i understood it at that level to begin with yeah um, you know i understood the purpose of all the characters if that makes sense like, yeah oh, lou is the boss and you know that's his job you know even though i i don't even know if i knew what a boss was but i understood those relationships and i think that's what kids first sort of can latch on to and so I think they were so clearly defined, those characters, that um, it was easy to understand, maybe in very broad terms, but it was easy to understand the show. Um, and then, uh, oh, when the show went off the air, I was 12. That's a, that's a big chunk of a person's life. You change a lot now from five to 12. The most. Yeah. I, I remember I was devastated. I mean, everybody has that story who was a fan. I was devastated. It was like somebody had died. Like I, I still have a hard time watching the last episode of that show. Oh yeah. 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 I still, I still do. Uh, I won't, if I get all the way to the end, I, I sometimes I won't watch that last one. It's too, it's too much. For really? Me. So it was that much of a, like an abandonment of, of, of friends. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they had been with me my whole life. Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Listen your whole life. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So. Um, Ted, Ted was the silly one. You, you knew that Ted was the silly one. Right. Yeah. You know what and, I mean? So th I think that's what, yeah. that's what I saw. And then um, I don't know if you've heard me talk about it, but um, we'll, 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 we're going to move back and forth a lot chronologically, yeah. I think. But that's okay. Yeah. But. Um, I used to um, probably Mary Tyler more, more than any other show, although I did it with other shows too. I would audio record the shows before there was videotape. I would audio record the shows and then listen to them to figure out how they worked, to figure out how you set up a joke and how you paid it off. And I was doing that. <sighs> I know I was doing it at 12. I was probably doing it earlier, 10, something like that. Um, and so, I learned a lot. So at 10 or so, you were, you, you, you wanted to see how the construct, you, yeah. you were deconstructing it. I was deconstructing it. I would do it with, uh, Mary Tyler Moore. I would do it with the Bob Newhart show. Um, yeah. Um, I think I first did it because I wanted, I wanted to see the shows again somehow. Like I liked it and I wanted to. You know, didn't want to be over. But then when I would hear it again, I started to hear, I started to notice patterns. Uh, and then I started looking for those patterns. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, was, uh, it's a foundational thing for me. Um, a foundational thing. Wow. Yeah. To, but I, to, I'm not to, sure I'm alone. I'm not sure I'm alone at all. I mean, people... I mean, you hear Oprah talk about the show, like yes. that show meant everything to Oprah. Um, yeah, there was something about it, particularly at that time, 
um, there weren't that many black people on TV, right? Like it was a thing, like in the house. Oh yeah. my God, so and so's on TV, you know, and we would all like James Brown is on TV. We, you know, I mean, Flip Wilson yeah. was on, and there were a few things, but there weren't that many. Um, and I and I was trying to figure out why. I could latch on to the Mary Tyler Moore show, which was so different from my own life. But I think there was something very human at its core. It was different from Oprah's life. It was different from my life. But there was something so human at the core of it that it it, it didn't matter that they lived differently and lived in a city you've never been to and, and um, had a life that was foreign in so many ways. It didn't feel like that at all. I guess there, there was a kindness to it. Um, the butt of the jokes, in, uh, the butt of the jokes in the newsroom was Ted, but Ted never got hurt. Right. He never got hurt. And his stupid things that he would say didn't hurt anybody. Right. Um, so, so it was, it was minus so many sitcoms then and now and every time there's there's superior things yes yeah. I'm superior to you therefore I can hurt you by saying something or there's meanness and there really wasn't there really wasn't meanness in, in those shows no I don't uh, think so and in fact they would they would uh, come to de Ted's defense sometimes they would yeah. You know what I mean? Like he, he was the butt of a lot of jokes and he annoyed people. But um, in the end, they they would stick up for him. They would, um, you know, let him keep his job when he probably shouldn't have. And, you know, you know, uh, they, would, they would stick up. They would stick up for him because they knew that he meant no harm. Mm -hmm. He was he, he it was like um, it was like. If you pass a crib that there, there's a baby, well, if you pass a little baby and the little baby kicks, and, and it, you know the baby doesn't didn't mean any harm. Right. Ted didn't know uh, better, so right. everybody knew. Everybody knew at his core, uh, he wasn't a mean person. Right. And, um, it was Georgette was able to Georgette was able to see the sweetness under all this stupid stuff. Yeah. And, and Georgette, for the people who don't know uh, the, the show, I, I hope everybody watches the show after this, this show, but, <laughs> uh, but um, Georgette, uh, well, first was Ted's girlfriend, but then married him on the show. Um, and um, she, she did see, she would get annoyed with him and, upset with him, but I think saw his humanity. Um, and he had a sort of Definitely. vulnerability. He had a vulnerability um, in a lot of the ways that, that Barney Fife did on the Andy Griffith show, which is um, a lot of their um, personality comes out of their insecurities and them covering up their insecurities. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's human enough, right? Uh, that we can see the yeah. person underneath. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the personality comes from the insecurities, like life. Um, yeah. Uh, with 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 Ted, he kind of 
he was elevated by Georgette's appreciation of him and her her love for him. Um, she she was so she as a character and as a person, uh, Georgia Engel, she she was so pure mm -hmm. that she could see through to in kind of a pure in kind of a pure way. Sure. She yeah she. She was one of a kind. Yeah. 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 Let's go back to your writing sketches for the first time, really. Right? Ah, uh, yes. Writing yeah. sketches for the first time. And um, I was I, I was getting I was getting them done and I was getting them done very, very well. I mean, they, they were being done very well. And there was a place in New York before you were born. <laughs> oh. I'm always saying that to people, so it's nice to hear. <laughs> um, before you were born, it was called Upstairs at the Downstairs. And it was a sort of, a sort of uh, equivalent of where you would go to get sketch writers. Uh, of Saturday Night Live. Oh, look, there's a sketch. Um, and every, everybody, everybody who was there would, would go there. Um, Jacqueline Onassis was there and Truman Capote went there and Mike Nichols went there. I mean, went there to see well, what's the latest sketches. And Carol Burnett's uh, producer went there and he saw my sketches and he asked about me to the Mater D. And um, the Mater D, uh, he, he said that he wanted to bring Carol in to see the sketches. Now, this was after she had done Gary Moore. Okay. Um, and uh, she was starting a new show called The Entertainers. All right. So I'm going to explain Gary Moore. So Gary Moore's show... I mostly know Gary Moore from I've Got a Secret, but I know he had the other show, right? Yeah. Right? So Gary Moore uh, was like a, a host more than I would say a comic. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And his show, what was his show like? What was his? It was sketches and, and, and songs. It was, an, uh, it was a variety show. It was on for a while, and, and Carol, came, Carol Burnett came up in the ranks and uh and she was wonderful enough that they they wanted to give her her own show but she felt she was was too early for her mm -hmm. so she wanted to have a group um so it was called it was called the entertainers and it was carol and john davidson mm -hmm. and um uh dom deloise and bob newhart um, who was one of your your favorites, and um, they they were looking for people to to hire. So the mayor he called me and he said, Carol Burnett is coming to see your sketches on Thursday night, the early show, the eight thirty show. Just want to let you know. So I was getting paid ten dollars a sketch, and I had five sketches in, so it was fifty dollars. And so I thought, well, I can't think of that right now. 
I can't think of. So I called everybody who hadn't gone to the show, all my friends. Hey, you haven't seen the show. Let me treat you. Oh, that's so sweet of you. We can come Saturday. Well, how about how about coming Thursday at 830? <laughs> um, uh, well, I don't know. Well, yeah. so I got a whole group that were all set to come at 830. So at 530, I got a call from the Mayor D. This sounds like a, a comedy setup, but Carol can't make the 830 show. She's coming to the 1130 show. So all my friends were there at the 830 show. And it turned out it was good that, it, that she wasn't there because there they were. They were being treated. They were having their drinks paid for. And it became sort of obnoxious. It was they would laugh before anything funny happened. Sure. But then the, the 1130 show, she came and she was wonderful. She was wonderful. And she hugged me. And um, and I got hired for that as a sketch writer. So that's cool. She's all, cool that way from everything I hear. Like uh, with Vicki Lawrence, like Vicki Lawrence got her job on the show. Do you know that story? No, tell me. So Vicki like Lawrence, Lawrence was a fan of Carol Burnett. And she wrote her a letter. Vicki Lawrence wrote Carol a letter saying, hey, um, I'm in this high school play. Will you come see it? And Carol went to see it. Huh. And thought she was funny and hired her for the show. That, that's amazing. That, that's that is Carol. Yeah. Um, I was I was so lucky and almost spoiled by how how dear she was and how she respected writers. Um, the very first time I was going to have a sketch on the show, she invited me to come watch the rehearsal. It was only her. Um, uh, playing little match girl, I had her, be, and so she went through. She went through it, and then the director said, "Carol, you know, there's a certain line. I'm not sure." Da, 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 da. And Carol said this phrase, "Well, let's ask the author." The word author, and Brian, you know what. Television can be writers being dispensable. I mean, yeah. it, uh, author, that that word, that yeah, that's Carol. She's she was wonderful, and um, she she started me in, in television, and then from from television. Wait a minute, I'm skipping some. Oh, I know, I know, I know. Before before that happened. Before that happened, and I was I was writing uh, sketches and songs. Um, I was at that point still singing and piano, uh, playing the piano, and I was at a place that was in the Broadway district, and my friend John, who I mentioned before, John Meyer and I, we were playing the piano, and there was a guy there. At, around the piano, who said, um, oh, do you know this? Do you know that? And so afterwards, I started to talk to him. And his name was something like Jim Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I met Jim. And we talked about Fitzgerald and Salinger. And we exchanged numbers. I have to <laughs> explain to our younger 
uh, people who are listening or watching this show that uh, Jim Brooks is James L. Brooks. Uh, James L. Brooks uh, was the co-creator of the Mary Tyler Moore show um, and has gone on. He's done all kinds of stuff. So uh, the Simpsons, he produces um, the um, uh, he wrote and directed Terms of Endearment and Broadcast News and As Good As It Gets. Um, just amazing. So just just amazing. Yeah. Yes, he co-created with Alan Burns mm -hmm. the Mary Tyler Moore Show. And Jim, at that point, was a page at NBC. And I was a singing pianist. And what we wanted to be when we grew up were, were comedy writers. So we kept, we kept in touch. And this, this is something that Jim doesn't know. Um, and maybe after all these decades, it's okay for him to know it. Um, I, uh, it was back in a time, it was back in a time when uh, they didn't have the push button telephones. Now you can have three lines, four lines. Um, so I had two separate telephones about to have a birthday. And it was going to be at my little apartment in New York. And a friend of mine had said, I will cook a birthday meal for you, but we can't fit more than 12 people because so you have a little table and we can't. So, okay, I can only invite 12 people. So I'm on the phone with Jim and we're, we're talking about what we want to do and what we want to write. And the other phone rang. I said, oh, Jim, hold on just a second. And I pick up the other phone and I say, oh, John, listen, um, this was pre-email, if you can imagine at sure. such a time. I said, John, I have to tell you, I'm having a birthday party. I can only have 12 people and it's on my birthday. Can you come? And he says, great. And I hang up. I go, oh, God, I'm on the phone with Jim, who I had met like three weeks before. So I go back and being my mother's good girl, I said, <laughs> oh, Jim, I forgot, I forgot to tell you I'm having a birthday party. Can you come? So Jim, later on in our relationship, when we were very, very close and working together, he said, I have to tell you something I've never told you. He said, when I met you, I thought we would really be friends and it was great. And we'd have a great relationship. But I didn't realize that you considered me one of your 12 best friends. And I thought to myself, Jim said, I thought to myself, you know, I think maybe she knows something about us. That, And he said, I then realized that we were going to have a really serious oh, wow. friendship. <laughs> um, yeah. That, so, yeah, Jim... Jim has gone on to be one of the best and most admired, um, along with Alan. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's how I met Jim. And so now I'm writing The Entertainers and working with Joan Rivers um, as her director, if you can understand. Wow. It was such a time of starting. It was much easier then. Um, than it is now. My, my friends who, who have daughters or sons who are just starting out, 
they say how impossibly hard it is. Um, I, I don't know. Not that it was easier. I shouldn't say easier. I, I, I don't know. But but there was such an incredible group of, of people that I started out with. Um, I had that, too. And you I, did? Yeah. Like the people I started out with, um, uh, Judd Apatow and Paul oh. Feig. Um, Wait, Judd, Judd Apatow and? And Paul Feig. Oh, Paul Feig. Oh, yeah. I thought always thought it was Feig. Paul Feig. Oh, well, yeah, it's Feig. Uh, yeah. Although he he has been told that he pronounces it wrong, but that's the way his family pronounces it. Uh, so, uh, uh, so uh, Paul, uh, Steve Higgins, who uh, is Jimmy Fallon's sidekick now on The Tonight Show, but he also produces uh, Saturday Night Live. Um, oh, who else in that group? They, a lot of people in that. Uh, uh, Jim Rules, who wrote the screenplay for Fight Club, was in that oh. group. Um, oh, who else was there were a lot of us there, there were there. Uh, yeah, there were a lot of us. And there were some satellite people um, that went on to some things that were not part of the main group. But um, uh, where, yeah, wait, all, where were you living then? Los Angeles. Oh, you were. Yeah. 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 I lived there through my 20s, more or less. More or less. Uh, so tell me the the years so I can kind of. I was there in 86. I moved there June of 86 and left in uh, 93. Was that Freaks and Geeks time? No, Freaks and Geeks was after I left. Uh, I, I All I knew about Freaks and Geeks is I talked to Paul and he said, I, show, I sold the show to NBC. And uh, he told me a little bit about it, that it was a high school show, but I didn't know much about it. Uh, but a lot of uh, a lot of that group worked on that show too. Um, yeah, yeah. And and the actors that they discovered who are now household. Yeah. Well, it depends on your household, but yeah. household <laughs> names. So yeah. many, so many of the people that they discovered are now not just actors, but writers and directors. Yeah. 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 They, they discovered a lot of really, <laughs> it was yeah. a, it was a talented group. Um, to say the least. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I knew Paul from, uh, standup and Paul, uh, just to, the freaks and geeks. I know it was, it was Judd and, and Paul, but it was really Paul's sort of basic idea, basic concept. And when he was a standup, Paul would do these things from his childhood uh, these little stories from his childhood that were just amazing. And he would imitate teachers and it was still funny, even though you didn't know the teacher, it was funny. He found a way to make it work for everybody. He had this shop teacher character he would do. And all the comics would stand in the back of a club and say, shopkeeper, shopkeeper. When he, <laughs> he would have to do it. Um, and he did. Were, were you a stand up? Yeah, but uh, that, that is, uh, I was, I was not good at it. So, so why, why do you, why do you think? Why wasn't what? I good? I wasn't terrible. I just wasn't good at it. And I, I bet it wouldn't look good at all now. Um, I, I know exactly why I wasn't better at it. Uh, first of all, I was around people who um, had been doing it a little, little longer. And so I was comparing myself to them. So that was one. Yeah. Thing. The other thing was, I didn't move to LA to be a standup. I moved to LA to be a writer and a director, but it was the eighties and everybody was doing standup. And I was writing jokes for a friend of mine 
And um, I would write jokes he couldn't quite tell. And he started introducing me as a comic to people. Oh, this is Brian. He's a comic. And I, I wasn't a comic. And uh, I thought I'd try it. Um, and I had horrible stage fright back then. Terrible, terrible oh. stage fright. Uh, but I did it. And I thought it was going to die. And I didn't die. And I, after that, I realized that, well, it can't get any harder than that. So I'll just keep doing it. Uh. And then I did it and I was doing it for fun. And then, I don't know, I hadn't done it very long before somebody uh, said, hey, we have a gig in Arizona. We want to fly you to Arizona to do this gig. And I'm, okay. So, so, so I did that and I, and I, I kept getting paid for it. But I, I wasn't good. Uh, again, I wasn't terrible. Uh, in fact, I remember I was on stage once and these people were just smiling at me and smiling at me, but not laughing. And I, and I, I said to them, you, you don't think I'm funny at all, but you like me, right? And they were like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. <laughs> and, um, oh, wonderful that you said that. Yeah, um, because I was trying to figure out how to turn that into comedy. It's like, okay, people like me when I'm on stage. How do I turn that into something else? But what I realized I was doing, because I was still trying to make it as a writer and director, there weren't a lot of people who looked like me in those positions. And any movie set I was ever on or or any set I was on, I was the only person of color on those sets. Jesus. And so what I was doing was trying to make myself inconspicuous, trying to not stand out as being the person who's different, trying to fit in. And so when I took that into stand-up, I wasn't being honest about what my experiences were. I was not, I couldn't get to a place of honesty. And so that stopped me from being better at stand-up. You know, I started off being silly because I sort of wanted to ignore race. Uh, but as it became more of a factor in my life and in my career trajectory, I wanted to talk about those things a little bit more, but felt like I couldn't because I thought it might hurt my other thing. So it was, it was complicated. But I think when I look back, I think that's what was holding me back. And I remember I saw Chris Rock at the Comedy Store one night. And Chris Rock wasn't famous. Um, he was he was sort of famous among the people in the know, but I mean he hadn't broken out because yeah. and uh people were like, Oh, Chris Rock's gonna be on. I didn't know who he was, you know, and I'm standing there and uh in the in the belly room, that middle room there. I'm standing there and uh Chris Rock comes on and it was like nothing you'd ever seen. Like it was everybody knew. It's like, well, that's a star. You know, when you see a star early on, you go, that that person's a star. Um, it was clear. And it was clear that I, I had no business doing what that guy was doing. <laughs> um, but he was honest in a way. I just didn't know how to be on, on stage. Uh, but I learned a lot about stagecraft. I learned, uh -huh. you know, I, I do a lot of, well, in days of when there's no COVID, I do a lot of public speaking. And I couldn't have done that without stand-up because... Um, once you stood on a stage by yourself and tried to make people laugh for half an hour, um, there's not much harder than that. And so I, if I go on a stage and talk about something I know, and I'm not expected to get any, to get any laughs, it's easy. It's a piece of cake. Uh, so yeah. I learned how to take the stage. I learned that actually from Paul Feig. I would watch him. He was really good at taking the stage. And I, I would watch him like, how does he do that? How does, I would watch Paul, Paul would, there would be 16 comics up a night, uh, and, uh, people would get tired. And Paul would, take, would, what? They would get tired, right? Tired. Seeing comic after comic, like five minutes at a time, comic after comic after comic, they'd get tired. Yeah. And Paul would walk on stage and everybody would sit up. And they, they, they sat up and they knew he was going to be funny. 
And I was like, how is he doing that? He hasn't even said anything. And so I just watched him and I figured out how to do that. Uh, oh, you did figure that out. Yeah, I figured that out. Uh, but that's part of the stagecraft that I use now. Um, what I, and that's one of the things I actually liked about, I like about this whole business is how much you can learn from other people. Yeah. And how generous people can be with the things that they know. So I learned a lot from just asking older performers, how do you do that? And what's this? And how do you take the stage? And how do you, you know, and there are things I don't know where I learned them, but I must have learned them someplace. Like, you know, I, I always, if I'm going to do any public speaking, I will go to the venue ahead of time and I will, um, I, I'll sit on the stage all by myself um, because I want the stage to be familiar to me. And I want the stage to be my living room. I want to take control of that stage. Mm. I'm familiar with it. So I go there and I'm just comfortable being there. Um, and then and then I'll go into the audience and I'll sit in sort of each section for a while to see what people are oh. seeing. Um, and then... Oh, so this is what I would look like from this location. Yeah. 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 So, oh, these people are, it's going to be hard for them to see. So I got to make sure that I you know, stand here or stand there um, or make sure I address them. Um, uh, walking on and off the stage is also very important because you can trip and that'll throw you off. So I always know how to get on and off the stage. Um, things like that, that I must've picked up. But, uh, Paul would, uh, what I've noticed is that people will take a stage and ask for permission to be there in their posture in there. Like, okay, I'm going to take the stage now. And I hope you think I'm funny. And there's a, they're timid. Um, but Paul would take the stage like he knew. I'm going to be funny. And people would, they, it, somehow they felt that. And they were like, this guy's going to be funny. And they would sit up. And I learned how to do that. I just didn't learn how to be huh. funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> you know, I was, I, was, uh, I was mediocre, but I was as good as I needed to be to learn what I needed to learn. And I, What a beautiful, that's, boy, that should be, uh, that should be a, Hanging over everybody's mirror—that's that's wonderful. So you learn—you learned all the things that you needed to learn. Um, I was just going to ask when you were when you were doing stand up, and you said you were trying to avoid anything that would make you conspicuous. So you avoided anything of color, mm -hmm. concerning of color. Yeah. Would you? So then you would deliberately do things. Say, say things that you thought that every kind of audience could relate to. That uh, you didn't. Yeah, I just, I just, you know what? I was just silly. I was a big Steve Martin fan, and um, I was just silly, and um, and then I wanted to not be silly, and I wasn't sure how to break out of that. Um, huh. You, you were know, silly. I, yeah, I just had silly jokes that were stupid. And, and uh, um, I didn't know how to break out of it. I didn't know how to, um, I didn't know how to do what the other people were doing. I knew what I knew. And that was, you know, how to write a story and, you know, all of those things. Um, so I didn't feel like I didn't have any talent. I just felt like it wasn't yeah. necessarily <laughs> here in that arena, but I, I learned a ton. So I can't, I, I, I actually think that, on some level, the reason I was doing it was to learn more about uh, communication. What do people need to know 
airport joke to work. You need to set it up this way and pay it off that way. You know, huh. I was able to write them. Um, I was writing them from other, for other people, but, um, but I was not the best at it. I was better at writing character stuff, read, better at writing things in a script um, than I was straight up just joke writing. I, but I knew some really great joke writers who have a really hard time writing scripts. So <laughs> they can write a joke though, huh. uh, but they have a really hard time writing scripts. Um, which is one of the things I want to talk to you about because um, you can do both those things, right? Uh, you can you can write jokes, but you can write a script. You can write a story, and I, I'm just curious about. Uh, oh no, I, I I can't write I can't write joke jokes. Uh, um, uh, well, I I could you know with my arm behind my back. Yeah, I could I could write a, a joke joke. But I wouldn't. But I would be less than mediocre at it. Um, I can only write something. I can only write something that's well. Yeah, I can only write something that's truly funny if it's coming out of a character in a certain situation. I'm writing a script now, uh, uh, a screenplay, and everything is. Everything is about the, oh, God, this is going to come off as so narcissistic, but everything is about the human condition. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's what's happening to him at that exact moment. Mm -hmm. What is he trying to cover up with, with, with his girlfriend? Um, what is he afraid she's going to find out? And and that's what would make his 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 line or re, his reaction funny. But I was once working on the Dean Martin show, <laughs> which was uh, ill-fated. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and of all things, I and another writer were given the responsibility to write for Bob Hope. Okay. As a, he was going to be a guest. Now, from a million miles away in another galaxy, you could be looking down and saying, that's a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> <That is laughs> right, because he so, was from liners. He was like, he yes. was like, yeah. He, he, he was he was one liners that he, he was a 50s. Uh, take my wife, please. He was a 50s. Anybody could be saying it. And if they say it right, it will be funny. Right. I don't know from that, you know, and mm -hmm. um, I, I wrote two, <laughs> I, I wrote two pages and thank God the other writer was so gifted that they used all of his, his, they, but I, they used one line of mine, um, which is about the ratio of how good I am with uh, <laughs> two, two pages and, and one barely, barely made it. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's really, it's really, it's really funny, funny things that would occur in a particular situation with, okay, I created, I created Georgette, the, the character of- Oh, you uh, created George the character Georgette? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Which I so loved that whole thing. Let um, me just say this, by the way about oh. how good you are um, and what people You're not, not boring know about you. Oh, no. <laughs> Now you are 
um, just talking about you creating Georgette and you've done a lot of things, but you won an Emmy and you, and you're the, I don't know how many Emmys you've won, but I know you have one. <laughs> um, and the, you were the first woman yeah. writing by herself to win an Emmy, right? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. That's, that's, that's crazy. That's an amazing thing to have done. So, uh, I, I just think people ought to know that's who they're listening to right now. <laughs> so, so, so you created Georgette, um, you were saying, I'm sorry. Oh, you can digress like that <laughs> with my blessings. Um, I, I wrote Georgette because Alan Burns, who recently... So Alan Burns, you know, we, we actually put this uh, aside. You were going to come on another, on another date and um, Alan Burns passed away. And so we decided to. Um, yeah, I, I was too. Uh, in, in, I, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I didn't want to do anything except just think about Alan. No, I get that. That makes perfect sense. So and you were, you were so dear. Oh, you and Hannah were lovely to understand that. Thank you. Oh, no, of course. Um, but uh, Alan Burns was the, the co-creator of the Mary Tyler Moore show, as we said earlier. And do, do you want to talk about what kind of a person he was and what kind of a talent he was just uh, as long as we're here? Absolutely. No, no matter, even if your your watchers and listeners don't know people in show business, you, you, you all certainly know enough to know that it's pretty crazy and pretty screwed up and, there's a lot of people who start out as decent people who want to get someplace, and then they turn into not so good. Alan was a total rarity in that he was he was decent and brilliant, and was the same feet on the ground person at the beginning. As, as, as he was when he created one of the most successful, wonderful shows along with, with Jim. Um, he, he, he had a side to him. You were saying the word silly. He had a side to him that was silly, wonderful silly. And at, at Mary's Memorial, which was a very, very small, uh, very small invited invited group. Uh, Jim, as as Alan's partner, said to to Alan when Alan was there at one of the tables. He said that the niceness of the Mary Tyler Moore show came from that guy there, and he pointed to Alan. And uh, Alan's niceness was. I don't think he had an enemy in the world. Mm. I don't think that anybody who, who met him and worked with him didn't feel how this sweet, lovely, generous guy get into this, this crazy business. I remember, I, I, I mean, this is just one of billions of examples, but I had written a show about Mary, Mary being... Mary being solicited by by Phyllis, her her next next door neighbor and her landlord, um, to to tell her daughter Bess the facts of life. 
Good episode, and, by the way. And I, I loved writing that episode. And um, there, there was a, a thing where where Rhoda comes in, and of course, uh, of course, uh, Mary, it, it was a little fearful that Rhoda was going to tell Little Bess too much. Sure. Um, and and so we were going over we were going over that scene, and Alan added, um, Adam, Alan added the line uh, about. Uh, Rhoda said, saying she got so confused that she thought the babies were made by swimming up upstream the Colorado right, the River. salmon. Yeah, that's right. The, the salmon. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Salmon. Yeah. Yeah. And so after the, so that was Alan's line. So if somebody's name was attached, he wrote he wrote practically everything. Sure. Practically everything. If you were one of the the standard writers, but okay, but there were times when. Uh, the group would put in, in in lines, and audiences didn't know that. And so, some people from the audience came backstage, and and Alan was standing near me. And he said, "Oh, wonderful show, Miss Silverman! Just Miss Silverman, just wonderful." But I have to tell you that that salmon swimming upstream, oh, just brilliant! And I said, "Oh, thank you so much." For liking the show, I loved writing it, but I have to tell you that it was Alan Burns's line, and this happened like several times in a row because the line was so great. People would come and come up, and and Alan came up to me and he said, "Treva, please don't say about that I I wrote it." He said, um, "You only embarrass them. They feel silly because they attributed it to you and." It, it, it doesn't do anybody any good. And you wrote the whole show. So just say thank you. Now, oh, how wow. many, how many people in any business, not just the show business, right. but uh, accountants, you know, you caught that mistake. <laughs> right. oh, it was Ed who caught the mistake. Don't tell people, you know, I mean, in every business you can relate to that. And that's who Alan was. And I loved him. And I loved his relationship his relationship with his wife was so honest and steady and wonderful. Um, and I will always, always miss him. And I learned every, every, every time I would work with him, I would learn something. You, you, were, you were talking about learning when, when you were talking about you were mediocre as a, a stand-up, but, but how much you learned. So much was was learning from Alan, and everybody who was on any of his shows, he he was responsible for the Lou Grant show that right. that, that followed that followed Mary. Yeah, the I, Lou Grant I show him. a lot. A lot, by the way, the Lou Grant show because Lou was a character. He was a, the boss on the Mary Tyler Moore show, and there was there were several spinoffs of Mary, but Lou Grant was, I think, the only ever drama that spun off of a comedy show. Yes. So, well, I don't, I, 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 I've heard it said that, uh, that, that it was the only one. And um, I totally believe it because somebody becomes well-known for being in a comedy. They, they all carried it off. They ca yeah, carried it off beautifully. They did. It was, it yeah. was an amazing spinoff. I've never, I don't think anybody's done that before or since. And it was amazing to see. And that says something about Alan Burns, that he was able to see that um, and do that. Yeah. Yeah. I met very, Valerie Harper once. Oh. She was very sweet. Uh, 
she was very sweet. Um, and like everybody, I was a huge Rhoda fan, right? And um, she couldn't have been sweeter. And what's great for me is um, uh, getting to meet and talk to people like you and then hearing you say things about um, about Alan Burns, making him a, a real three-dimensional human being um, yeah. and not a name on the screen um, is, uh, is an amazing uh, gift to me. So, um, because the, because you were all my teachers. So, um, uh, it's so it's, it's great to know more about those people. And I appreciate you, um, um, talking about Alan Burns that way, because, um, um, I know it's not easy to talk about those things when it's so fresh. Um, yes, so I appreciate yeah. you doing that. I wanted to ask you, so when you, when you were with Valerie, mm-hmm you could see and you could sense who she was. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. She, uh, I was, uh, I was at, uh, I was in Austin at the film festival in Austin. And, um, I, I had a, I was on a few panels, but this is like, I had a free period and a friend of mine was, um, uh, sort of, um, emceeing, uh, a filmmaker. He was talking to a filmmaker. And so, but anyway, so I was there for that. And Valerie Harper was in the audience. And I think I was the first person to, to, to notice that it was Valerie Harper. Uh-huh. And uh, so I was like, okay, when this is over, I got it. I got to get, I got to get a picture. So, um, <laughs> and so, uh, but by the time it was over, I think people, everybody figured it out. She was, she was laughing very hard. She was, <laughs> she, she was not inconspicuous. So by the time it was over, everybody knew, Oh, Valerie Harper's here. And so uh, I, I was close to her, but by the time I got in line, it was this long line to get a picture. And she was gracious and, and let everybody, um, you know, take a picture with her. And she would check the pictures. Let me look at it. Is that okay? Really? Do you like that one? Do you like that one? Let's get another uh, one. It's a little blurry. And she did that for everybody. Um, it was amazing. It was really cool to see. And I talked to her just a little bit. Um, in fact, Paul Feig was at that uh, thing, and he talked to him a little bit. I don't know if they had met before. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was a big deal for me to uh, to meet her and for her, her to be so sweet, just unbelievably sweet. Watching her say say to the person, "Oh, it's blurry." That then then you got to know Valerie. That, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. She. Yeah. Uh, I could go on on it, but I think she was amazing. That character. She brought that character to life. Rhoda so well. That's a. It's hard to believe that that's nothing like who she was. In terms of. Yeah. She wasn't a New York person. You know all those things that I. I still believe. Yeah. A real person. Like I still when I watch a show. I'm like, Rhoda's a person and Valerie Harper's a person and they're not the same person, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, uh, I don't know if that was true of Mary. I feel like Mary is more like Mary's character is more like Mary in some ways, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know those people. So I don't know. Mary was quite, uh, quite close to Mary Richard, the, the, okay. the Mary Richards character when she when she was on the show. Okay. During the show, during the show, 
she and her husband split up. Oh. And, and Mary Tyler Moore moved to New York and um, everything kind of changed for her. I, I had moved back to New York in the 80s and she was there in the 80s. And we, 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 we got our friendship going a whole different other way. She was dating. Um, she, she hadn't been dating in years and years and years because she had had two marriages. Mm-hmm. Two, yeah. Um, and she was uh, in therapy, which she was very proud of. And um, she became less Mary Richards and more Rhoda Morgenstern. Oh, did she? <laughs> yes, in her in her own way. So I want to get so you 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 met so you were doing other television shows. What ha- did you work on Room Two Twenty Two? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So Room Two Twenty Two, as a matter of fact, is one of the first things I ever remember seeing on television. Right. Right. Yeah. Of course. And that, and that theme song has been in my head for fifty plus years. Like I don't. It's just in there. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, for whatever reason, it's, I don't think I understood that show at all, but I watched it. Uh, <laughs> um, how old were you? So I was like three when it started or something or some, you know, so yeah, I remember watching. It's like, I remember that show and Mannix. Those are the, the, <laughs> those are the early, my early memories of television are Mannix and uh, room 222. Um, uh, but um, so th- you wrote on that show. Am I right? Yeah, I wrote I wrote two episodes and it was um, it was, uh, it was me. Wor- I, I was working with Jim. Um, J- J- Jim Brooks uh, created it. And it was a high school show. It was, it was a high school show. And um, the two the two leads were people of color, which hadn't, which was why your parents planted you in front of <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, then the second show that I, second episode that I wrote for them, Jim had called Alan in um, to, uh, first was, I think, he, he uh, as co-producer, and then Alan started writing a lot of the shows. And so I had the opportunity to work with Jim as uh, not just to be a friend and the opportunity to work with Alan so that when I got called by Jim after uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show got the go ahead, we had already worked together. We knew that that we understood each other, that we were on the same page. Um, I hate that expression. Um, <laughs> we were on the same whatever wave, yeah. wave. yeah. So um, can can I ask you? You know, I never got to be on staff at a at a show. I always wanted to be, but I never was able to do that. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to do it was that learning from each other thing that happens. Yes, you know. Um, yeah. Like, oh, that's great. I got to remember how to do that. You know, I, I, I like being in it. That's part of the reason for this show, even that I can talk to people and, and learn from them. Um, it's really an excuse for me to talk to people I want to talk to and learn from them. Right. So what 
You hide it very well. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is yeah. completely a selfish endeavor for me. <laughs> no, you act as if, uh, no, you're wonderful with, oh, thank with you. everything. With everything. So, um, but what is it that those two guys had um, that made them so good at their jobs? And how were they able to bring other people along? Um, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yes. They, no, yeah. I, know, I know what you mean. Um, well, there's a word that's going around politically, and I it's applicable here, empathy. Okay. Empathy is what made the Mary Tomlin show. Being able to get into the character's mind and what the character would be feeling and how the character would be reacting. People will say the word conduit, being a conduit for the, who the character is. When you really understand the character, you can, you can sort of channel, channel the character. And that's, that's, what, that's what they did creating, creating the show. Um, that's what the writers were able to, to do. For instance, um, I wrote I, I wrote a show about uh, about Lou Grant's wife leaving him. Oh, yeah. And we were casting the wife, and it was the fourth year, I think. And in all the four years, he he had talked about his wife, right? But we we had never met her, and so we had to sort of work backwards, which is. We had to cast somebody who filled the, the description of how he talked about her, but we had never seen her. And so different actresses came in, and a wonderful actress came in, and uh, she has a bunch of speeches, and um, which were the audition piece. And she she read one of my speeches, and we were kind of sort of all, almost teary by her portrayal. And I said, uh, after she, I, I said, I think she's wonderful. And Jim said, no, uh, she would be wrong because she's very, she's very fragile looking. And she's, she's, she's small. She was about 5'1", very slender. And you have the idea, he, he said, you have the idea that, that Lou could make her do anything he wanted to. Oh, right. Yeah, Lou was a big, imposing. Big, big, imposing, took center stage. And then when the actress who ended up being, being uh, taking part, she was taller. Uh, she was... She had a nice figure, but it was—it was not a fragile work. It was not a slim, fragile. And I always think that the best kind of education is working with people as good as you are or better than you are. Oh yeah. Um, because uh, just here, that that one thing stands out in my mind with, with casting. It's, mm -hmm. It's not just how good can she do the scene because she was really wonderful, but how will it appear 
Right. Yeah. And I think that everybody who's a good writer, maybe they can't read out loud in a reading, but they can act it in their mind. Mm -hmm. They have to be able to, they have to be able to act it in their mind so that they know that's the way, that's the way they perceive it. Yeah. And that, that's the way they, they see the character. Um, and everybody who, who wrote regularly for the show must have had that. There's a thing that, that I read about and I hear about, about acting classes, which this to me is so fucking ridiculous. Uh, the first thing that the, you might know this, the first thing that acting classes say is, Take away all the ground, or t- take away all the underlines in the script. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So they take away all the underlines. My response is, I would not have written the line that way without the underline. Yeah. Um, so you're 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 taking away Carol Burnett's author. You're you're, you're taking away right. the the writer's. Uh, yeah, it's, it's the same as writing a word, right. uh, the underline. And um, I, I, for one, can't, can't understand how acting teachers don't, don't, don't get that. I'll be watching even a terrific movie. Um, and every now and then, uh, not a great actor, but a pretty good actor will, will himself or herself underline the wrong word. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't. I didn't mean that instead of, well, I didn't mean that. Right. Or I didn't mean that. Right. I mean, it's, whole, right. It's, it's three different life choices mm-hmm. um, of, of it's three, three different choices. I don't have yeah. to do it up. But yeah. Yeah. And so it, it kills me that acting, how did this come up? Um, anyway, em, empathy, that's the word. You know, um, my uh, my I, I was friends with August Wilson and he used to uh, hmm. in- intimidate uh, actors all the time because when he would go see a rehearsal, he would catch every little comma that they missed everything. And uh, he would tell them like he would come up afterwards and like the word is and there, not like every, so he. Yeah, people they he but that's different because it's theater and they respect the writer in a different way. Yeah, a much yeah. different way. Yeah. Um, yeah, where, where you can, um, uh, a much different way. It's the only medium of, of television and, and movies and theater. Theater is the only medium where uh, the writer has permission to... To, to not change stuff. Right. <laughs> like the writer yeah. can be like, no, that's it. That's the line. <laughs> right? like, well, you can, uh, the writer can close down a... A performance, yeah. If if they wish, if if the, if the actor is, I don't know why it's a, a simple concept. I'm blubbering over it, but, no, but yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, the, writer, the writer is the uh, main person. Yeah. The well, it's their thing, right? <laughs> right, right. You yeah, know? yeah. So, was there anything like? Um, because here's the thing: it's one thing to be able to write funny characters. It's one thing to be able. That's one skill, but the stories were good. Like one of my, my favorites is the, is the, 
uh, Rhoda the, the beautiful one. Rhoda. Oh. I, I love Thank that you. episode uh, where she enters a beauty contest. There's so much honesty in it. Um, and one of the things I appreciate the character about the character of Rhoda is that she she makes jokes, but she's serious about everything she jokes about. Huh. So you know what I mean. That's, so that's, that's very profound. What you just said. Yes, that's who she is, right? She doesn't yeah. just make jokes if she makes jokes yeah. about her weight it's because that's the way she feels if she makes jokes about her looks it's because that's how she feels or the yeah. fact that she's not married because that's how she feels it's not just to be funny she's yes, dead exactly. serious about the things she jokes about and i like that about the character because a lot of sitcoms are everybody's clever and everybody's got jokes right there are only a few people with actual jokes on on the show uh mary murray uh uh, later, Sue Ann had had jokes, but um, but it, a lot, most of the stuff was just completely out of character. And the people who made jokes made jokes completely out of character. Rhoda's the best example, I think. When Rhoda makes a joke, it's kind of not a joke to her. She's it, saying she's saying how she feels, and she puts it in a joke fashion yeah but she's not joking really if that makes any sense yeah um and yeah. one of the things that happens in that show that i love is that she's always putting herself down and mary calls her on that um and it's really great because it's true that's who she is she's always she's down on herself um yeah and that was true of the character before that episode so it was a nice observation to you know sometimes on something that's not as well written, a character has a problem for that episode that they've never had before. But <laughs> but that's who yes, she was the yes. whole time. Yeah, yeah, she's yeah. like that, and it was a great place to go for a story, um, especially the beauty contest, and um, it was just a great place to go for a story. And the story itself works, and that's I'm fascinated by. You know, I, I've known a lot of people who write jokes, and story doesn't come naturally to them. Did story come naturally to you? Or was that guided by um, Alan Burns and Jim Brooks or, or, or how did that happen? How did, how did, why was everybody so good at writing this show? <laughs> Story does not come naturally to me. Okay. And I don't know why, mm -hmm. but it doesn't. In this particular story, they said to me, it was after the um, hiatus, and they said, Treva, um, Valerie, Valerie has lost 20 pounds, and we want to make a show about how she feels about it. So they, they already had that. Mm -hmm. And we would get together, the three of us, and we would hammer out the show. We would hammer out the beats of the show. But I would be negligent if I didn't say they would hammer it out and I would adjust things or add things. Okay. But alone in the room, I, 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 I was not alone in the room and making that the, the beats of the show. They were responsible for that. Um, at, the, at the end, when there's that big nature where there's a big major change. 
I would test out the tape and then we then we would tape uh, then I would tape what, what we said. The tape ran out before the last scene. I was going crazy when I was writing it. I thought, what did we say that last scene? I mean, I knew that she had won, but that's all I knew. Mm -hmm. And so the last scene was entirely my own doing, which was every beat was was on the tape. But the the last scene where she's ashamed, she's embarrassed to say that she won. Yeah. because because she's been living with that version of Rhoda, the overweight, uh, insecure, self-deprecating. She, she's been living with that all her life. She didn't know the script mm-hmm. <laughs> to the new, right. to her new self. So she gave up on, on and she gave up on telling the truth because she thought she wasn't worthy because she's still that person. And she said she hadn't won, but she came in second, and that's okay. It's perfectly okay. It's where she should be type of thing. And then uh, she gains confidence in that moment, and that's when she says, that's when she describes that she did win. Right. And, Brian, I can tell you I was crying when I wrote that. Yeah. When I wrote that final turn. Yeah, when I wrote that final turn and I'm writing it and tears and I thought, this has got to be right. <laughs> now, tears, when you wrote it, it's, it's, it's a really great episode, but I, I want to when you wrote it, there's a story that's similar. And I think it was Harvey Bullock. I'm not sure. I think it was him. He was writing for the Andy Griffith show. Okay. And and he there's a line in an episode where he said, I didn't know what this last line was going to be. I didn't know. Yeah. And he's typing and he gets to the end where he knew what was going to happen. And then he said, I don't know where it came from, but my fingers kept typing. And he typed this amazing last line for that episode. Um, <laughs> and he says, I don't know where it came from. And I think that sometimes you when you are in the groove yeah it's it's almost like you're taking dictation did you feel that or did you feel like no this was a complete creation that took everything for me to do or were you just in the groove were you in the zone i was totally in the zone and my unconscious was right there yeah and my conscious was my unconscious was writing it yeah on my behalf and on Valerie's behalf and on Rhoda's behalf. That's all I can really. Yeah. No, I, I know what you're talking about. It's a, it's a, it's a really amazing sensation and it doesn't happen as much as you'd like, but, but, when, it, <laughs> but when it happens, it's uh, it, it's an amazing thing because you, you know, it's working. When it happens, it's not you, you know, when it, it happens, I always think I have a lot of money in the bank. I always think that everything is going to be okay. I always think that the Democrats are going to take over. I always think that the world is going to be absolutely perfect. It's the most wonderful feeling that you can ever have, which is I'm a writer and I'm creating something that I love. Right. It doesn't get better than that. No, it's an amazing feeling. Yeah. Um, 
And you know, again, you, you know it, and I think you can appreciate it because on some level, it feels like it wasn't you. It's like you're appreciating just good work that someone did, right? <laughs> you know, um, but it doesn't quite feel like you. Sometimes it's almost hard to take credit for it in a way. I find that with me. Oh, I haven't found it hard to take credit for what I, what I, no, seriously, what I find is that I, when I look back on it, I think, did I write that? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I'm, I, I think, did I write that? Where did that come from? And I say, okay, now I'm going to write something else and it'll just pour out of me. No. <laughs> no. Oh, no. Uh, I'm going to, ha- I'm going to take that rope to the stars again and have, and have the stars just write it out and I'm tape- typing it. No. no. The, star- no. the stars say to you, it's over, honey. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. You did it. Uh, it was fun, but get out. Yeah, yeah. they don't. They don't. Wait, yeah. till, wait till the next ride. And then yeah. hopefully someday, that day, that week, that year, the ride will come back. Yeah. Again. You it's can't like, predict oh, when it's going to happen. It just it happens when it no, happens. No, you, you can't. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. Where does it come from? I mean, yes, it comes from innate. Uh, understanding of the character and everything, but why can't you get it back? I would do anything. Listen, listen to me. I would do anything to get you back if I could just press a button and have it come back. So, yeah. So was there, you know, I'm writing something right now that I'm not supposed to talk about, so I can't talk about it, but, but I I know I I asked them if there was um, any kind of, bible for the thing or any kind of guidelines and they they don't have any i like it when there's some focus um going back to the andy griffith show this is one of the shows i know there was a rule for so andy would say to the writers if a joke makes a liar out of the character lose the the joke right and that was sort of a template Right. That they would follow. And and so, you know, there are scenes that aren't funny in that show because they're not meant to be because, well, there's no reason to have a joke here. We need a just a utilitarian scene where this happens or Andy's actually very upset here and we'll let him be upset um, uh, because a joke. We're not going to force the jokes in. And they, and, yeah. and there were these rules, you know, um, uh, Andy was a Christian, so he wanted every show to have a Bible lesson in it. Now, that's not blatant. You can't tell. You can't uh-huh. watching the show. But I think it helped create a tone for the show. It helped create a direction for the show. It gave people a roadmap. And I'm wondering, was there any kind of roadmap? Were there any kind of rules or on, on Mary Tyler Moore's show? Or was that just embodied in the two creators of the show? No, there were there were no rules whatsoever, no rules whatsoever. We all instinctively understood if it's if it's not right for the character, you know. We we followed the Andy Griffith rule without uh, without knowing, knowing, yeah, without knowing it. Um, there there was only one thing that we did do each year, which was when when an actor is up for an Emmy. Uh, the Emmy uh, judges don't look at the whole body of work. They look at one episode. 
Mm-hmm. And each year we would select one episode before it was written to be the Emmy episode. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I know that's unusual. Um, yeah. yeah. And so when, uh, when uh, Valerie uh, lost her 20 pounds and Jim and Alan called me in, they said, we want you to write it because they knew that I'd been off and on, Weight Watchers, gaining and losing. And that I was close with Valerie. So, okay, I was going to, and they said, we want this to be Valerie's Emmy show. Um, there was a show that Mary did win an Emmy for, and that was decided in the, before I wrote the show for her, that that was going to be her Emmy show. That was a show where she gets fired. Uh, yeah. Weirdly gets fired. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was going to be her Emmy show because we wanted to have the scene, which, which Mary did so gorgeously. We wanted to have the scene where she's miserable and she wants to come back. And, um, I had her, I had her cry twice (laughs) in the scene. Um, I had her, well, anyway, um, yeah, I, I wrote it that way. And, um, yeah, that that was the only that was the only rule that we had, which was this show is selected. Um, the Luminiti story was selected as Ed's Emmy show. Um, when when he, uh, that, that so, always makes me sad. That episode always makes me sad. Uh, still, I'll watch it. It will make me sad. But when Lou really, oh yeah. 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 It still makes me sad when I see it. Again, I think that the show at its best was always honest. You know, it was honest. The emotions were always honest. You know? Yeah. They were stories that had funny things in them. And it didn't feel like the show existed just to get laughs. It felt like it existed to explore these characters um, and take them on a journey, an emotional journey. And again, it wasn't always funny, you know, when uh, there's some Lou and Edie stuff that just isn't funny. It's real. And it's sad. Yeah. The Lou and Edie story, you said the end of it makes you sad. Not the end of that. Cause that's the, the first one. She comes back, right? Is that the first no. one when she leaves? No. The, Which the, one does she come back? She, she leaves. At one, oh, she doesn't leave him. That's when they break up because she's in school. That's a different one. Remember, and he's got his log and he's going to, do you remember that? <laughs> he's got his fire log and he's all prepared to have his fire. Anyway, that's a different one because at the end of that one, they're back together. But when Edie actually leaves, yeah, yeah. that makes me really sad. Yeah. Would you have been, would you have been as sad if there had been a joke at the, um, at the, if there had been a joke at the end? After after she leaves and uh, she's leaving, and he says, "If and anytime if you want to come back, uh, I'll, yeah. I'll right, I'll, I'll, I'll take you right back." Right? Yeah, I remember that. Okay, that's how it ends now. If there had been a joke afterwards, would it have made you less sad? Probably. I suppose if it was exactly the right joke, if there was honesty in that joke, um then maybe, I mean, I guess it would depend on the joke, but, um, but it doesn't 
feel like that would be right. It felt like it ended the way it was supposed to for that story. Um, well, because we had a con, there was a conflict of should uh, one person said, "This is an entertainment show. We don't want to make people sad," and and I was on the side of, "Yeah, but it is sad." Right. And oh, I, I was on the side of don't add a, add a joke. So I just was just curious. curious. Uh, you, I well, am I a tiebreaker for for a fifty year old argument. <laughs> <laughs> Bravo! <laughs> yes. Uh, no, I think that that's exactly that? right. I, I, I think that um, <laughs> err on the side of honesty is probably always right. That's well, here's what I think it did for me is I'm more invested in the show. Uh, uh, uh. I, you know, every time those characters have a real struggle. I'm more invested in the show because it's real. What happens to them? What happens yeah. to Lou now that he's not with Edie? What, you know, those things become um, important to me, right? Because now I, be I believe these people, uh, you know, it's it, all of the people. I, I can't believe they're not, they're not running around someplace doing stuff like those characters. I believe that they, yeah. you know, live and breathe. Um, that became a marker for me as a kid, actually, about how well a character was written. I would think mm. I can imagine them living their life when the show is not on. Huh. Then I know, like, I can imagine Rhoda and Mary going to see Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid or seeing The Sting. Like, I can imagine them going. I know exactly how that would go down. And it's like, yeah, I can see that. I can, you know, I can see Lou on the weekends. I can see, you know, I can see their lives. Um, and I feel like ah, if I can't see their lives, they're not, they're not fleshed out enough. They're not dimensional enough. Dimensional they're just enough. joke tellers. They're just joke tellers. Yeah. Um, and there are shows like that where I can't see them outside the show. Um, I don't like those shows as much, but those are characters I, I honestly believe. Not telling jokes, just hanging out. I can see it, you know. Um, that's lovely. Yeah. 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 But that became one of my sort of, uh, markers as I was trying to learn this stuff. It's like, oh, you have to have characters that people can imagine outside of the box, <laughs> you know, you know, outside yeah. of the TV screen. Um, uh, there's a thing in my head when I'm writing that, that it's a tape almost that runs as I'm writing characters and I, it's uh, how do I make them live? How do I make them live? How do I make them live? And it, it's in the back of my mind all the time. How do I make them into real people? How does that happen? And I don't know how it happens exactly, but I know having that question makes me do a better job. <laughs> like, you know? and, and then when you finally do make them live, you, you're aware of it, right, Brian? Yeah, it's I think like, so. Oh, I think so. He's, he's alive now. Yeah. 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 And I don't know when that, when it clicks over, when it becomes that, um, but it does. There's a, something clicks and you go, okay, that's a real, I know how to write that person. And some characters, it's a, it's such a joy to write them and to spend time with them. I had a character who's the villain of a piece who was so much fun to write. He was smarter than me and, 
more clever and <laughs> sort of just fun to be in his head. Uh, and he would say things and I'm like, I would never say, I didn't even know where that came from, but that's what that guy would say, you know? Um, May yeah. I say something? Yeah. Um, he's not smarter than you. You created him. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It, it feels like that. I mean, have you ever written a character who's smarter than you or funnier than you or? Oh, funnier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I can, I, I can't delete when I say something in real life, but I can delete it on the computer. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that. There's yes, that. But, there but, is that. But when you're writing in a certain voice, yeah, the the voice can take over. When you're lucky. When you're lucky, and yeah. and then it's 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 not you, and it can make you laugh. Neil Simon used to say that all the time, like, "Oh, I laugh all the time when I'm writing," because. Yeah. You know, he's hearing the joke for the first time when he types it out. <laughs> you know, you know. Oh, oh, I love that. He's hearing the joke for the first time. Sure. Yeah. 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 He's, he's, he's creating a baby and, and he's, he's seeing the baby smile and how wonderful that is. Yeah. 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 So he types something for Felix Unger to say and he's like, well, that's hilarious. You know, he, you know, he knows. Oh, the F.U. thing. Oh, that's so funny. That's so where, where he did, he didn't realize until later on when he signed it F U. Yeah. Do you know? <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I don't want to yeah, blow yeah. it for people who haven't seen the movie or the play, so I want them to see it. <laughs> so okay. yeah, oh. a couple. Yeah, that's, yeah. Um, oh, that's so, a lesson in, in itself. Yeah. So was yeah. I just want to know what you in that environment now? The shows were staffed differently. Like, like a lot of shows were freelance. Right. Um, was the Mary Tyler Moore show a staff in a room working together or or how did that work? Nowadays, there's that phrase, the writer's room. Right. And that's when every single writer gets in, gets into the room and throws lines back and forth and concepts back and forth. Right. No, we that did not. Uh, that wasn't present on, on Mary's show. At the very beginning, it would be Jim and Alan in a room with me. Um, that was at the very beginning. As time went on, uh, let's say in the second year, sometimes it would be uh, Jim and Ed Weinberger and me. Or once, uh, once it was Alan and me. And the Alan and me show... I think had slightly different color mm -hmm. to it. Okay. Um, uh, I know at the beginning it was just a few writers. Steve Prisker, who's a wonderful writer, mm -hmm. um, he he was in it from the beginning. Uh, I know that we never had a writers' room. We ne we never had that. Um, and I hear from friends of mine who are in writers' rooms that it's gotten ugly and competitive. Um, it was just the opposite with us. Nobody, nobody cared who who came up with the line. There was no pecking pecking order. It was whoever came up with the line, great, you know. And I would never go home without uh, the, the 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 first year. It would take a week to. I would go in on a Monday and it wasn't until a Friday that I would have the whole story. 
and then you send it in, bring it in, and they would approve. It. How long did you have to write a script? How long would it take you to write a script? Uh, um, it's so varied. It's so varied. There's a book that came out this week in which I read about myself. It, it was a, a book that was about, it, it included the Mary Tyler Moore show. And in the book, it says that I took two months to write a script, which is not true. Okay. Um, I take longer than most people. I don't know how long. Sometimes it would be two weeks, three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, or about a month, I think, for, for me. For okay. other people, God, wow, I haven't talked about Aaron Sorkin. Oh. I, have to, I have to talk about Aaron Sorkin just very quickly to say that when he was writing Sports Night, uh, and when he was right, he writes so quickly. Yeah. He writes so quickly. And um, God, I hope the trial of the Chicago 7 wins everything this year. God, how wonderful it is. Um, but he, he said in one of his interviews that because he had a deadline all the time, um, he said he had to he had to write things when he wasn't writing his best and how it killed him, but mm-hmm. he had to do it. We we didn't have that. Mm-hmm. We had a long, I started writing for the show 1969. It didn't go on until 1970. Um, so we had a long time with the, those early scripts. Um, the early ones were, were really the hardest because you, sure. you were feel, feeling You're your way. Trying to figure out the show. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and yeah. the voice of the show and the tone of the show. That all makes perfect sense. Um, yeah. w- one of the things I am curious about, because um, it's just now um, starting to um, be addressed again, and that is there were women writers on that show, and there weren't a lot of women comedy writers writing for television. There are there were staffs like on the monkeys or something where you'd be the only woman. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I was the only woman. What was that like? Oh, 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 I was the only woman writing without a partner. And what was that like? And and from what I understand, by the way, on the Mary Tyler Moore show is that they wanted the perspective of the women. You know, when I was a kid, I didn't know who was writing the show. So. I, I would marvel at how well I thought the women were written on that show. Um, like, yeah. how, are, how are they doing this? You know, um, the three sort of uh, Mary, Rhoda and Phyllis are very specific. Um, they're not generic in any way. They're very specific people, all three of them. Yeah. And um, and so well written um, and conceived that um, I, I would just marvel at how well they're written. And it's, it's interesting to know, at least from what I do know, that they wanted the input of the women who are writing the show and their perspective. Um, you know, I've often found that um, if my perspective, if I'm the only black guy around and I have a perspective and the other people go, well, I don't know what you're talking about, right? Chris Rock said this about SNL and so did Tina Fey that with a room full of white men, it was very hard to pitch things sometimes because they would say, well, that's not funny. And Tina Fey, it's pretty funny. 
Right, right, right. So it's Chris Rock. Pretty funny. So you, they know what's funny, but in a room full of people who don't have the background, don't have the references, don't have uh, the point of view, it's easy to dismiss those points of view. It's interesting to know that on the Mary Tyler Moore show, they sought out those points of view. Yeah, sought out is exactly the word. Yeah, they they sought out women writers. Um, and I'm just remembering something that happened with my first. This happened with my very first meeting on Mary Tyler Moore show, where we would we would do the obligatory just talking 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 thing before before getting down to business sure of course and something had happened to me that i that i mentioned and alan said oh we can use that we can use that let's start the show with that that that's what it um it was that i had been called ma'am oh uh, today i am a ma'am is it today i am a ma'am yeah i had been called ma'am and i was telling them what it was like and you know how old do I look and and um Alice oh so let's let's start so we did so um that's that's what they got from Marilyn Marilyn Miller is a wonderful wonderful writer and person um and Marilyn Marilyn came in with her partner They, they they would write such relatable stuff wonderful wonderful stuff based on that based on stuff that had happened to them that's that's what jim and and alan were after right i I think that alan was influenced by his wife in in wanting authenticity in the women characters you always have to think who are the influ- who are the influences right um sure yeah and if he was listening to his wife and paying attention to what she was saying then yeah 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 um that makes and sense J- and, and jim at the, jim at that point was was married to a feminist but i i think it was just innate to both of them that that they wanted to write characters that were authentic it was the time had come yeah well, I mean, there's an episode I tell people all the time. There's an episode where Mary is upset because she finds out that the man who did her job before she had it got more money. Got more money. And um, and that's, you know, part of an episode um, yep. that long ago. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, and, you know yeah. what I mean? It's still a problem now. So that it's still the same problem. And so I can only imagine what it was like to bring it up then. Right. Radical. Yeah. Yeah. I want to tell you something that you will, I think, I I know you'll appreciate this. We had, we had, uh, Gordy was the weatherman. Right. And Jim said, uh, these are the characters, Gordy's the weatherman. And he said, he thinks that it would be funny when, when Cloris, when Phyllis comes in, for her to assume that because Gordy is black, that he's the sportscaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and because the cliche, black right. people, sports, right. that's it. Yeah. You know, um, John Amos was so, 
so good. He was so good. Yeah, so yeah, he was he was a better man. Yeah. Um, the th- the thing about our raising issues, it didn't happen that much. Um, of course, we were on at the same time as all in the family. Right. It was, you know, yeah. issue, okay. issue, issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which was in, in, incredibly forward thinking, of course. Sure. You know, that, that show doesn't need me to, to say that. But our, ours, ours were more subtle. Yeah, I would say that that's true. I mean, yeah. I don't think Vietnam came up more than once or twice on the show. And that was happening. Uh, Did it come up? It came up I'm once. Trying- uh, there's a, a friend of Lou's uh, oh. who's uh, um, kind of has the hots for Mary. And I think he spent some time in Vietnam being like a correspondent. Huh. I forget. I forget the character's name. I forget the show. But he's the one who's like all of a sudden he's like, I'm in love with Mary. But he just met her. Um but uh, I think he spent some time in Vietnam, but I think it only came up like that. Like, oh, he's yeah. a correspondent who goes all over. He's been to Vietnam. You know, I think it was on a list of things. It wasn't it wasn't anything about Vietnam. Um, yeah. You know, and at that time in my life, um, Vietnam had been going on my whole life. So it was part of the news. Oh, right. Oh, so right. that the world you were in. Yeah. 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 Um, I didn't necessarily, I didn't quite understand what it was. My uncle was there. I remember when he got his orders to go, but I, I still didn't know exactly what it was. I remember though, it was the first time I saw a grown man cry when he got his orders to go. Oh, um, yeah. I remember that I remember him with my grandmother and him crying and her comforting him. Um, yeah, that's, so that, that's all I knew about Vietnam really, but that's, yeah. uh, you know, that's a lot actually. Um, but, yeah. um, but yeah, so, um, so, but it didn't come up on the show because the show didn't deal with issues in that Political. way. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, it, it, yeah. de- it did deal with issues, but it didn't deal with them that way. And I think also coming on, right when that wave of the women's movement was sort of getting going and becoming a big deal. It's interesting. I think if that show had been on five or 10 years earlier, it wouldn't have been the same show at all. You know, um, it wouldn't have gotten on. No, as is, it wouldn't have gotten on. No, it couldn't, it couldn't get on. Right. I mean, yeah. Um, Mary's not married. Right. Right. You know, you know, all these things. Um, You'll never make it after all. Yeah. Um, You're just a girl. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, so it was, I don't think people understand exactly how groundbreaking it was, even though it didn't do it in the most, um, like it, it was right out there with all of them in the family. It was forward. Um, it was right yeah. out there. And in fact, I think that's one of the reasons that that show, as good as it was, doesn't age as well, I think. Because it, the politics are so much of their day, of that moment. 
of what Nixon is doing or what, you know what I mean? Huh. Like, you know, and so unless you know all that stuff, it's it's sort of hard to uh, to follow along, I think. Um, for people. That's who interesting. Are, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas yeah. Mary, it's like, you know, again, a woman who doesn't feel good about how she looks was that, is that go, that's not going anywhere. That is, <laughs> you know, what I mean? you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, or uh, unfortunately, a woman not making as much as a man that doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Right. So um, it, it dealt with things that are more evergreen, I think. It benefited by the era that it was uh, in. Yeah. Not even the era, those particular years. Yeah. I mean, 1968, 1969, had it been in 1962, 63, that was still the Kennedy years. That was was still when your hair had to be exactly uh, that that, the movie coming home is so is Jane Jane Fonda. Yeah. Uh, Did Hal Ashby do that? Yes. Yeah, Hal Ashby. Hal Ashby. We're at the beginning. Her hair was exactly under, under. And then uh, after her husband went away and, and she was influenced by her best friend, and then her hair was all over the place, natural. And sure. um, we, we, were li- we were living through exactly what was happening. Uh, uh, what was happening in the real world was not happening in the TV world, except right. with Norman Lear. Right. But, and the other shows, nothing like that was happening. So our show progressed along with it. Yeah, it really um, did. Rhoda and Phyllis were much more aware of the changes. Mary had to be dragged in. And Mary Richards was never completely changed um, sure. by, by the events. She was, she was more typical uh, mm-hmm. Her background, her yeah. her Protestant uh, Midwestern, um, with her with her parents, with her. But she did grow. I mean, she did push back on things like having to get coffee sometimes, or you know, like why am I? Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, you know. Yeah, well, I'm the yeah. associate producer. Why am I doing this? You know, um, and it came up in I think very real ways, the way that stuff often comes up, especially I think, um, I think sometimes there has to be a critical mass. There have to be enough people complaining about something for people to hear it. Um, And if you're alone, you often don't say things. You know what I mean? I'm alone here. I'm not gonna rock the boat. I'm not gonna say things. Um, I don't want people pointing at me. Yeah, you know, there has to sort of be a critical mass and then you're like, oh, well, I'm backed up by all these other people who are having the same experience or, you know, yeah. um, but um, b- when you're out there alone, it's a different thing. Um, I, you know, I kept you too long. So um, no, I could I talk to you it. forever. Uh, um, I, I really could talk to you forever. And I hope we get to talk more. No, we don't need a show uh, to do this. I just. Oh, uh, that's so lovely. I, yeah. I was thinking the exact same thing. Oh, really? I thinking, um, yeah, I was thinking. Why should it end? Boom. And that's it. Um, yeah. Well, it doesn't I, have to. I, I, uh, I, I, you are a joy to talk to. Um, and uh, like I say, you, you are, you're foundational. Like I said, like I, I, 
I wouldn't be the same oh. human being probably if I hadn't uh, watched that show. And oh. I know I wouldn't be the same writer. I know it. Um, I learned so much from it and I still learn from it when I watch it. I still, I'm like, that's so smart what they did right there. It, it means the world to have talked to you. So thank you. Thank you. Have you on the show. So, uh, I, 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 I could just, I could thank you for half an hour. So I won't do that. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but thank you for all the work you've done and thanks for, uh, for being a guest on the show. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for watching. You are a storyteller, part of the Co-Loop Podcast Network. If you have any questions or if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, leave a comment below or email us at hello at beliefagency.com. 